1997, 22-year-old Anu Singh and her 24-year-old boyfriend, Joe Chinkwe, held a dinner party in their townhome in Canberra, Australia. However, this was far from an ordinary gathering. Shortly before their friends arrived, Anu delivered a bone-chilling message that a heinous crime would be committed. I'm Jelsey May, and this is Exhibit May. In early 1995, 24-year-old Joe Chinkwe accompanied his friends for a night out in Newcastle at a popular local club called The Brewery. It was during this evening that he encountered 22-year-old Anu Singh and her captivating charm quickly caught his attention. Anu had recently graduated with a Bachelor of Economics from the Australian National University in Canberra but had returned to Newcastle for the summer to be with her family. Anu was originally from the Punjab region of India, but moved to Australia with her parents at the age of two. Her parents, both medical practitioners, had two children, with Anu being the elder. She displayed eloquence and performed exceptionally well in her academics, although according to her parents, she occasionally made questionable decisions. Anu was previously in a long-term relationship, but a romantic connection between her and Joe sparked when they met at the club, resulting in a brief affair. However, upon Anu's return to Canberra, her boyfriend Simon uncovered the incident and ended their relationship. Following the breakup, Anu and Joe started seeing each other regularly. The first time I met Anu was at a dinner. The impression I had of her was she was a strange girl. Conversations that uh, we had during the dinner were about uh, the afterlife. Do you believe there's an afterlife? Uh, what, what exists after this world, which is all well and good, but she also spoke about things such as her previous relationship and how intense it was with her previous partner to Joe. She said they were so close, um, it was almost incestuous. I didn't know how to react to that. It certainly seemed odd to me, and it was clearly odd to Joe as well, but he said nothing, um, but it was clear that he was uncomfortable. He really did seem dimmed by her. She was always in the foreground, um, leading the conversation, leading very strange discussions at times, um, and Joe was always in the background, and this was not the Joe that I knew that I grew up with. In 1996, they had entered a long-distance relationship as Anu pursued her law studies but chose to keep it a secret as Anu's parents wished her to remain single until she completed her education. Every Friday afternoon, Joe undertook a five-and-a-half-hour drive to see his girlfriend, returning in the early hours of Monday to make it to work by 9 a.m. Anu dealt with persistent health problems and Joe occasionally flew out to care for her during her periods of illness. Even during their time apart, he would make up to 15 calls daily to check on her well-being even if it led to substantial phone bills. Friends described their relationship as intense, marked by physical passion, with Joe deeply infatuated by Anu, who took on a dominant role in the relationship. Joe changed very quickly when he started dating her, just due to her dominant personality. He either had to submit or he would never have survived three weeks with her. 
and that's what he did. I, I believe he changed in order to be with her. Observing concerning changes, Maria and Nino Cinque, Joe's parents, grew apprehensive that their son's romantic partner might not be the ideal fit for him. When uh, Joe met, I called the devil because she's worse than a devil, uh, he wasn't himself anymore. Uh, she demanded too much of him. When I was talking with my son, she was talking somewhere else. Soon she saw my son Joe was talking to me. She come and grabbed Joe from his back and started to talk and kiss him, this and that. But not only once, maybe four, five, six times. We had a lot of argument on the phone because every night Joe come back from work, I made sure that the food was on the table to eat. We sit on the table eating and talking. And she used to call 10 minutes after we eat and he stopped eating and talked to him for one hour on the phone every night. Then I started getting very upset about that. Quite a few times, I went to the phone and I said, look, we eat at six o'clock in this house. Can you please ring at seven? Let him eat. And then you can talk all night. Maria cautioned him about Anu's persistent demands and attempts to manipulate him. However, Joe told his mother not to make him choose between them, saying, I love you, but she needs me. By September 1996, it was clear that Joe had prioritized Anu above everything else and had made the transition to Canberra, where he now lived with her full time. I was very angry with him. I said, why well, you want to live? Uh, you know, you got your family, you got your friends, your job here. We didn't want Joe to go down there. In November, Anu finished her year of studies and the couple spent three weeks in Newcastle residing with Joe's parents. While Maria Cinque found his son's girlfriend a perfect house guest, she couldn't shake the feeling that something felt very off with her. I had at least a few, quite a few fights with her. She was just very possessive, you know, just wound him. And I said to him, you end up that she, you're going to leave Newcastle, you're going to leave your family, she's going to want you down there. And that's exactly what happened. I never liked her. Honestly to God, I never liked her. I'm not saying this now. She never got a present from me. They knew each other for nearly three years. Never got a present from me because there was something about her that didn't trust her. Just, she tried too hard, and I knew there was something wrong there. And, you know, before all the flood, you see, he was happy. After that, he never seemed smile anymore, never laugh anymore. He never touched a cigarette. All of a sudden, he started to smoke too. He was always upset, always a lot of things on his head. Many observers remarked on the couple's apparent contentment as time passed. Yet it became increasingly clear that Anu's mental state was deteriorating rapidly. She continued struggling with ongoing stomach problems, and despite the efforts of medical professionals, an underlying cause remained elusive. Eventually, doctors determined that her issues were purely physiological. In the meantime, Anu had been trying out amphetamines, which could have contributed to her frequent episodes of paranoia, where she firmly believed that things were crawling beneath her skin. She also exhibited signs of dissociation, sharing with her mother the unsettling sensation as though her head was connected to someone else's body. Her obsession eventually extended to her physical appearance, leading to the onset of bulimia. 
She spent extended hours at the gym, tried various purging methods, and pleaded with her father to finance liposuction. This led to severe depression, prompting her to return to her parents' home, causing great concern for them. As a news life spiraled out of control, she became convinced she had contracted HIV. She shared her concerns with a friend, expressing her frustration at Joe's apparent immunity to what she believed to be her condition. She even openly discussed her intention to contaminate his toothbrush with what she thought to be her infected blood. Following her negative AIDS test results, Anu started considering the possibility of having multiple sclerosis. She began taking as many as seven showers a day and confided in her father about her fear of not surviving. Furthermore, she revealed to another friend her inclination to embark on a violent rampage, targeting Joe, her former boyfriend Simon, and the doctors she believed had wrongly diagnosed her. Whether she just perceived she had illnesses or whether she was deliberately faking these illnesses, I, I guess that only she can know that. But Anu Singh's come to a point where she felt that her life wasn't worth living, that she was going to end her life and she was going to take him with her for, for his part in her deteriorating health. One month later, she and her best friend, Marta V. Rao, also a fellow law student, visited the National Library of Canberra. There, they found a book that discussed an individual's right to choose death, which included information on assisted suicide. The two of them proceeded to make photocopies of several pages from the book. Another month passed and Anu conversed with multiple friends expressing her wish to end her life. At first, she contemplated using a self-inflicted gunshot as a means, but her plans changed after a conversation with a known drug user on campus discussed how in large quantities, heroin can cause a user to stop breathing, leading to a painless death within minutes. He believed that $150 worth of substance would be enough to get the job done. One week later, Anu and Mardavi visited his house and exchanged $250 for half a gram of heroin. They received instructions on how to administer the drug correctly and both experienced their first injections. Several weeks later, Anu purchased another gram of heroin. When the dealer asked about the substantial amount, Anu replied, Someone's coming with me. On Monday, October 20th, 1997, Anu had organized a dinner gathering. Among the intimate group of dinner attendees was Marta V, who shared with the others that this event served as a farewell occasion as Anu was planning to end her and Joe's life that night. Anu had over-prepared food and inquired if anyone would be willing to visit nearby neighbors to invite them to partake in their celebration. As word of her sinister plan circulated, it piqued the interest of other students, leading them to consider joining the party. As a house brimmed with joyous guests, Anu displayed a cheerful and affectionate demeanor towards her boyfriend, free from any signs of suicide, which led the group to doubt the seriousness of the plan. He was simply attending because he lived at the house and Anu was his girlfriend. So as far as I can ascertain, he was not aware of the, the motive behind the party actually taking place. As the night progressed, the party eventually ended without any incident. But when Mardavi provided transportation for a few guests to their homes, she revealed that the plan was still set to unfold later that evening. The passengers continued to ponder whether the situation might be a joke and debated whether to seek medical assistance. 
Ultimately, they decided against it, respecting a news decision and choosing not to become entangled in the matter. Anu crushed some sedatives and discreetly added them to Joe's drink, causing him to gradually fall asleep. She then retrieved a pre-prepared syringe full of heroin and tried to administer it, but Joe's restlessness made it impossible to locate his veins, causing the liquid inside the needle to congeal, rendering it ineffective. The following morning, Joe awoke and headed to work, unaware of Anu's actions the previous night. After her unsuccessful attempt to kill her boyfriend, Anu approached one of her acquaintances, a heroin user, to obtain Rohypnol, a tranquilizing drug nearly 10 times more potent than Valium. This sedative was commonly prescribed to assist patients in overcoming heroin addiction, and Anu's friend had no difficulty obtaining a prescription from a healthcare provider. Anu acquired 15 tablets and was informed that when combined with heroin, just one pill could induce unconsciousness in a person. Without Joe's knowledge, Anu had arranged a second dinner gathering on the evening of Friday, October 24th, and once more, she informed the guests that she intended to end both her and Joe's lives afterward. But no one attempted to intervene or seek assistance as the initial party had ended smoothly, leaving them to believe it might have been an effort to gain attention. Upon Joe's return from work, he was taken aback to discover his home bustling with people. Despite his surprise, he graciously played the role of a welcoming host and showed affection towards Anu, exuding a cheerful demeanor as he eagerly discussed their upcoming holiday plans. The party carried on without any issues well into the early hours, and one by one, people began to depart. In the end, everyone except Marta V left. After all the guests had departed, Anu once more crushed 10 Rohypnol pills into a fine powder and discreetly stirred the drugs into Joe's coffee. Over the next 36 hours, she administered multiple heroin injections, rendering her boyfriend unconscious. His complexion had turned pale and his lips were dark blue. In a state of urgency, she quickly reached out to a friend who had helped her obtain the drugs, seeking guidance on dealing with a heroin overdose. Anu conveyed that he was only breathing once every 10 seconds and was instructed to administer mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. She briefly placed the phone down, quickly returning, revealing that Joe had begun to vomit black liquid. Her friend persistently urged her to call an ambulance, but Anu said, It's too late. He's gone anyway. Her friend cautioned her that if she didn't contact the paramedics, she could face a murder charge. Abruptly, the phone disconnected. At 12.10pm, Anu dialed the emergency services hotline, desperately seeking an ambulance to assist with a suspected heroin overdose. Yeah, could I get um, an ambulance please? Um, I had a person Overdosed on heroin? She was in a state of hysteria and repeatedly declined to provide her address despite the dispatcher's persistent requests. Eventually, after several long minutes, she provided the address as 30 Antle Street before quickly changing it to number 79 and stating that her name was Olivia. While emergency dispatchers made an effort to calm Anu down, they once more emphasized the importance of performing mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. 
Still, she continued to refuse, explaining that Joe had a substantial amount of blood coming from his mouth and his teeth wouldn't open. After eight long minutes of elusive responses from Anu, the ambulance arrived and they were greeted by a woman in a white dress with noticeable dark stains, energetically waving her arms on the street to attract their attention. It was a duplex building, so we went in the front door and called out, walked upstairs. There was one ambulance officer inside the bedroom and there was a male casualty laying on the floor and he was naked and there was a lot of browny liquid fluid coming out of his mouth. Um, so they were having trouble getting past all of that to get into his lungs. So it, he was obviously not conscious at the time and there was no way that we were going to bring him round. As Anu sobbed and pleaded, throwing herself onto his lifeless body, she begged them saying, you must bring him back. It wasn't supposed to end like this. We were supposed to leave together. The lady in the house was actually quite frantic and she was pacing around, walking back and forward to the window, to the door. And she approached me a number of times. And one of the times she grabbed hold of my forearm and said, he had a lot last night and then to let go and walk back over to the window and just kept pacing around the room. The police then arrived at the scene and physically escorted her out of the bedroom before commencing their questioning. During the interrogation, Anu admitted to providing Joe with four Rohypnol tablets and consuming some herself. She then proceeded to inject herself and Joe with heroin. She went on to explain that she persistently administered it to him to ensure he remained unconscious when she killed herself. The typical concentration found in the body of an overdose victim typically fell within the range of 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per liter, whereas Joe's system registered an extreme level of 0.67 milligrams per liter. Anu was immediately apprehended, arrested on charges of murder, and taken into custody. The Chinque family received the news of Joe's passing later that evening, and his parents immediately recognized who was responsible for their son's death. I had tea ready, and we wait for him to ring. And he didn't ring, so around five o'clock, something like that, I rang him. I rang him, and a strange voice answered the phone. I said, did I bring the wrong number? Who am I speaking to? And he said, um, sergeant or some police person. I said, what's the police doing in my son's place? He said, just a minute, please. At the same time, the police knock on our door. The police told me, you know, can you sit down, please? I said, what's going on here? And he said, is that about your son? As soon as I said that, I started screaming, please. Don't say anymore. She killed him, did she? She killed him. Straight away I knew. Straight away I knew she did kill him. I started screaming, please don't tell me it's not true. It can't be true. That's when I knew. It was a nightmare. It hasn't stopped. Marta V was summoned for interrogation and confronted with accusations of murdering Joe Cinque alongside charges of attempted murder, illegal and felonious homicide, and the administration of a stupefying substance. 
Her parents posted a $100,000 bail three days later, securing her release on the condition that she would reside under their supervision at their home in Sydney. Anu and Marta V were scheduled for a combined trial set to take place a year later, with Anu being detained while awaiting the trial's commencement. On Tuesday, October 6, 1998, Anu appeared in court for her murder trial facing charges for Joe's death. She pleaded not guilty to the murder charge, citing diminished responsibility due to her mental illness at the time of the incident. She argued that she hadn't received adequate treatment for borderline personality disorder and major depressive disorder. The friend who had given Anu the heroin she used to cause Joe's death was granted immunity in exchange for providing evidence against the two accused individuals in court. Many witnesses testified about their knowledge of Anu's plan to commit a murder-suicide. When asked why they didn't intervene, many found it challenging to provide a straightforward answer. On Thursday, June 24, 1999, camera crews and journalists filled the staircases of the courthouse anxiously anticipating the verdict. The Cinque sat in the front row with Maria quietly shedding tears. Professor Paul Mullins, a forensic psychiatrist who evaluated Anu for the court, affirmed her assertions regarding her profound mental illness while emphasizing her ability to distinguish between right and wrong, saying, This was a grossly disordered woman with a mental illness. She was mad. Not totally mad. She knew what she was doing up to a point. She knew it was wrong up to a point. She could have controlled herself up to a point, but she wasn't in a normal state of mind. Justice Crispin addressed Anu directly, stating, In the next few years, you will have to come to terms with the fact that you killed the man you loved. You have caused immense pain. If you find the moral courage, you may be able to rebuild from this wreckage to repay the trust people have put in you. He then ruled her not guilty of Joe Chinque's murder, but guilty of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility. Anu Singh received a 10-year prison sentence with a non-parole period of four years, retroactively starting from the time of Joe's death. This implied she could be released in just over two years, leaving the Chinkway family deeply upset by the brief sentence. When we heard the sentence, we thought it was, was a joke. 10 years and uh, probation, four years, uh, are you joking? You get for a dog, you get that long. He's a man, he was 26 years old. And he, he would live another 60 years for sure. And you give four years to her. What's the, what kind of a, we scream and scream and we couldn't believe it. And the police next to us they said, that's the way it is. Outside, she conveyed to the press her belief that Anu deserved the death penalty through hanging. Maria's outrage struck a chord with the general public, who perceived Anu as having outwitted the judicial system and escaping the punishment for murder. Many people thought she would have faced a much harsher verdict had she been subjected to a trial by jury. The injustice that is associated to his death again overlays all this. The fact that the Chinque family feel absolutely betrayed by the justice system in Australia. Uh, the fact that there has been really nothing close to what they would call um, adequate justice for what she did. When questioned about her reasons for killing Joe, Anu replied, there is absolutely no legitimate or rational motivation at all. 
Marta V's trial commenced half a year later on Friday, December 10th, 1991. She entered a plea of not guilty to a list of charges including murder, attempted murder, unlawful and felonious slaying, as well as administering a stupefying drug. Anu served her sentence at the Silver Water Correctional Complex, a high-security prison where she was employed in the prison library. During her time there, she underwent psychotherapy and was prescribed medication to address various mental health concerns, such as depression, anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. She was then relocated to the Emo Plains Correctional Center and granted temporary leave to attend classes at the University of Sydney, where she earned a master's degree in criminology. In October 2001, at the age of 29, she was granted parole but returned to jail in April 2004 after violating her parole by using marijuana. After challenging her re-imprisonment on a technicality, she was released on August 5th of the same year when Joe Chinkway's Consolation was published. In 2009, Anu received her doctoral degree from the University of Sydney's law faculty for her thesis on Australian female criminals. At the age of 55, she lives in New South Wales and is in a committed relationship with a former inmate she met while incarcerated. In a recent interview with journalist Ginger Gorman, she said, If I could turn back that clock, if I could have listened to people back then and gotten the right sort of help, then this wouldn't have happened. As for Marta V. Rao, she has since changed her name and relocated to the United States with her husband and children. Many of their former classmates and friends who attended the dinner parties and failed to report a news intentions to harm Joe have pursued careers in the field of law. One of the biggest questions that you're left with at the end of all this is just why did nobody stop this? Why did so many people know what was about to happen and not do anything? As for the Chinkways, they still struggle to understand why nobody came to their son's assistance. His mother Maria said, You have killed the most precious thing I have ever had in my life. My first son. My firstborn. The one that was going to carry his grandfather's name. He's not here anymore. When October comes, a terrible time. His birthday is worse. Nobody rings you. Either they remember or not, we don't know. You don't feel like go out. Even if you see something funny, you, you start laughing, you stop. Because you think, no, I, I should not enjoy myself. I've got no right to enjoy myself. Because you think, why should I? I've got no right, he's not here anymore. People tell you, oh, I understand, I understand. No, you don't understand until you go through. You don't know how bad it is losing a child. It was a person, it was my son, and he lived 26 and a half years, and he's not here anymore. If you or anyone you know is thinking about suicide, emotional support can be reached by calling or texting the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 or by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255.
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate the show, and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast. <laughs>